Hey listeners, today's episode deals with the topic of domestic violence. We wanted to notify our listeners who may experience trauma related to that topic ahead of the episode and to let you know that resources are listed on the website. Thanks for listening. In this true crime law and order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals, one who researches the actual crime and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. Guess who's back with a brand new edition? We are back. <laughs> Sit down and listen. I don't know. What, what song even is that? That's Vanilla it's, Ice. Oh, Vanilla baby. Ice. That's Ice Ice right, right, Baby. Right. Oh, man, anyway. What a time. Hi. <laughs> um, it's been so long. I haven't heard your voice in so long, let alone. I know. Did you miss it you. terribly? I did. Aww. I did. We're back, though. I know. I'm excited. I'm very excited. I hope our listeners are equally excited. <laughs> well, listen, they're listening to it, so they're probably excited. <laughs> I mean, so much has, so much time has passed. There, there's got to be updates in what we've been watching, what we've been doing. Do we have any? Do you want to? What's? What are your thoughts? What's going on? I mean, I have several things to talk about, so I feel like we should just dive into those things before we get into the episode. Yeah, we'll we'll see how much I can. I could squeeze in at the beginning. <laughs> okay. So Miles and I uh, both got COVID. And so Ugh. we were home for a while and had a lot of time to kind of watch TV. Mm-hmm. So we watched a few different sort of true crimey documentary series. And so I will tell you about each of them. Great. So the first one we watched is pretty new on Netflix. It's called Keep Sweet, Pray, and Obey. I It's on my list. I haven't watched it yet. Okay. It's about um, a man named Warren Jeffs, who mm-hmm. is the leader of the FLDS, which I think stands for like fundamental something, something. Uh, Latter-day but Saints. Mormonism. Fundamental Mormonism, essentially. Yeah. And it's all about like... Um, child abuse and human trafficking. Mm-hmm. And so uh, definitely really interesting documentary. It's a series or just a, a documentary? I forget. Uh, it's a series. Okay. Yeah, I'm interested in watching. I've seen things on Warren Jeffs before, but I feel like this probably has some more recent updates and, you know, it's Netflix, so I'm sure they yeah punched it up a bit. Yeah, for sure. I also, I haven't finished it, but I started watching The Way Down, Finally. mainly because you told me about this woman's hair, <laughs> Matt. Okay, so this woman is, you know, the, the rumor is that she's like a cult leader or whatever. Mm-hmm. How anybody follows somebody whose hair looks like that is beyond me. I, I mean, you, if you've been watching a little bit, you see it, it didn't start that way. It didn't, no. I, but I... It was always 80s inspired, like yeah. hairspray inspired, even in the early days. But in the early days, it was more like, I don't know, news reportery, you know, or like talk yeah. show hosty. Yes. And then it started to get a little bit, a Out little bit pumped up, like a little it's... bit bump it inspired. And then it just became a life of its own. It, her it's hair. A life of its own. At some point, she gave her hair so much power, her hair took control, essentially. I mean, she, she also, she like looks like a cartoon villain in like yes. Captain Planet who's like killing yes. the ozone with hairspray. A hundred percent. So <laughs> listeners, even if you don't want to watch the documentary, you must Google 
it, just type the way down and you'll see it's the uh, uh, HBO series. And her name is Gwen Shamblin, S-H-A-M-B-L-I-N. You, even if you don't want to watch it, I need you all to just go and Google that name so that you can see this hair because I have truly never witnessed anything like it. It's otherworldly. It really is otherworldly. How are you liking the documentary so far? It's pretty good. Uh, well, so, okay, so I have a third one that I'm about to tell you about, and okay. I think this one really took the cake for me. So, I, And I s- started with it, and so I, I was kind of like high expectations, and then the way down was like fine, but not quite as gripping to me. Okay. So the third one is a four-part series on Hulu, and it is called The Deep End. Hmm. And this is a story of, uh, it's a cult story, again. And the whole kind of premise of the series is, is this or is this not a cult? And the documentary filmmakers, like, had access to film with the supposed cult leader and her, like, posse. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that they expected to get what they got out of it. Like, I, I don't think they... Like, they let them have access to kind of their inner workings and stuff, and I don't think really expected... Uh, it to the... go where it was going to go. Exactly, yes. Interesting. Um, and I have I have never in my life... Well, that's not true. This The woman who, is, who leads this group, uh, mm-hmm. her name is Teal Swan. The things that come out of her mouth are shocking like Mm -hmm. i there were so many times where i i'm not one of those people who really talks back to the television like that's not kind of what my my vibe (laughs) but there were many times watching this where i was like oh my god at like the things that come out of her mouth the things that she does the things that she believes it's truly truly shocking interesting i'm i'm like looking up little tidbits about it online right now not like spoilery but just to see her and like okay this is interesting i'm i have never even heard of this you have to watch it It, it's pretty new i think it it, uh just like the fourth and final episode just came out like a week and a half ago um so i need you to watch it and i need you to tell me what your thoughts are once you watch it wow okay i definitely will this looks right up my alley maybe we should um talk about it on a patreon episode that could be fun okay cool and then one of the things that you put on the list of things to talk about, I also was going to put on the list to talk about. Oh, perfect. I watched the documentary about Abercrombie and Fitch called White Hot. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts? I, okay, I'm not surprised yeah, by anything I learned not. because yeah. I remember a little bit about it when it was the big scandal. Yeah. Um, I didn't know quite as much about it. It's just the way they described Abercrombie Mm-hmm. And how it looked and the vibe you got as a consumer mm-hmm. <laughs> about it in the 90s it was yeah. so spot on. Yeah. <laughs> like, just the description of the people who worked there and the way they styled it and the way they trained their employees was so spot on. And yeah. then the sort of, like, racist undercurrent, among other things, <laughs> was, I won't say shocking, but um, interesting and illuminating. You know, I would say... I was anticipating more scandal than I got out of the documentary. I think I, I also was pretty unsurprised by most of it. Like, right. It was, it was a fine documentary. I, I'm not saying like people have to go out and watch it, but mm. it definitely was like a, a look back into 
the late 90s, early 2000s, and the just wild, wild times that were those fashions. And uh, those fashions. And the, it, and the scents. Yes. Oh, my God, the scents. I mean, I, for me, if, if I hadn't lived through that time period when Abercrombie was like what it was, I right. probably wouldn't find it as interesting or... I, I, I don't think I would have. I don't think they busted open any like major scandal that everyone hasn't already heard of. No. But the nostalgia aspect of it was very well done and very uh, compelling to me because yeah. it really was. I remember the cool kids and even the not so cool kids would buy that catalog every year oh. that was just the like based softcore porn. Essentially, yeah. And I just remember everybody wanted those catalogs oh and they would bring them to school and people would get in trouble for bringing them to school. It was like a whole thing. And the giant shopping bags that were just pictures uh, of naked men on them. Yes. It's so funny. The one thing I will say that the documentary kind of like made me reflect on was that I didn't think about at the time was like they were selling clothes by putting pictures of people with no clothes. Yeah. It's so weird. Yeah. Yeah, and anyway. my mall definitely had one of the ones that had like the the half naked guys just standing oh, yep. outside. Yep, yep, yep. And it was like, oh my god, don't bully me. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I thought that was interesting, fun to watch. I've watched a bunch of uh, documentary dramas, like the dramatizations of already made documentaries. Uh huh. So we're watching the Staircase on HBO. How? Oh, oh, oh! The that, that's the one with, series. Is that Tony Collette? Yes. Okay. How is it? It's good. I didn't realize it was still going on when we started watching it, so we thought we finished it, uh, and we're like, "Oh wow, that was a weird way to finish it." Like they didn't <laughs> really wrap it up, but yeah. it's I, we're just not all caught up. So, okay. um, one thing I'll say is, other than the main guy who plays Michael Peterson, who is a huge actor, I can't believe I can't remember his name right now. But anyway, do you want me to look it up? If you want. Okay. Um, everyone looks just like their counterparts oh really like so much the daughters and and the lawyers and such they look and sound but the guy who plays michael peterson while he doesn't have like the look down what can you do about that he sounds and has his mannerisms down to like a creepy bizarre like level it's so good um colin firth colin firth there you go which he's a great actor, so I'm not surprised. Oh, he's he's just and you, you've seen the Staircase documentary, so you know yes. how Michael Peterson has a very affected like way of being for sure, and it's just so spot on. It's it's chilling. Um, mm. I'm sure his family hates this series because they're really filling in a lot of blanks, and I think they're like taking liberties because they're well, really doing the whole like not only what the documentary showed, but they're doing like sort of what ifs. Like, oh, what yeah. kind of could have happened that night in two different scenarios? Um, what could be happening as they're filming the documentary? Like, how did the family react to the cameras being around and all that kind of stuff? And they're also exposing the stuff that wasn't shown in the documentary about his relationship with the editor. <laughs> oh, <laughs> the whole interesting. Time. Um, yeah, so it's very good. It's compelling. It's very, you know, sensationalized, I think. But... It's worth watching. I wouldn't hmm. say you're you're learning anything brand new, but it's definitely entertaining. Interesting. Okay. We did go on a little bit of a rabbit hole dive afterwards because we were like, oh, <laughs> I wonder how the kids feel about the documentary. I wonder if they're all still behind their dad. Well, and I found this. Aren't, aren't some of them, like, isn't it kind of a split? Like some of the older kids don't? Not really. It's, oh, really? It's mainly okay. just her daughter. 
Caitlin, oh, right. Who at right, one right. point, you know, said like, enough is enough. Like, obviously yeah. he did it. Yeah. Um, and then the other kids have all been so behind him. Hmm. However, we did find strange deleted um, like TikTok or Instagram live video mm-hmm. of the oldest son. Okay. And he like basically says, my dad did it. And I'm finally saying it out loud. Um, he's basically saying like, he did it. He killed her. I think he killed his ex-wife and his, his, um, first wife who he had his two boys with, who who's featured in the documentary. She died of a heart attack recently. Like, I don't know, within the last five years, I guess. Wait, didn't he push? Well, okay. So the rumor that was is the that... third one. So, so oh, the Jesus. first wife he had was the one he had his first two kids with. Okay. That's when he met the other woman. Okay. The next woman was not his wife. It was the neighbor. And then she died. And then he adopted her children, the girls. Gotcha. Okay. So his first wife was alive still. She was in the staircase documentary. She's the one who like kind of flew in and she, she also has a very effective way of speaking, but she, she died a couple years ago of a heart attack. And then her son, the oldest boy was sort of like going on this tangent about how he feels his dad's responsible for her death too, because he didn't call right away. Yeah. And he like went after her belongings right afterwards. Hmm. But then I went on a rabbit hole where he's kind of I won't say like he's crazy or went off the deep end because I feel like those are rude terms. Yeah. <laughs> but he um he's definitely got some serious issues. So huh. he's maybe not the most credible. I mean, I still gotcha. think Michael Peterson did it 100%. But um yeah, very strange if you're interested in in a, a weird deep dive, find mm-hmm. his oldest son's Instagram page. Hmm. Um okay. he's got some sh- strange beliefs and uh shady dealings. Interesting. Um I also watched Inventing Anna. <gasps> oh, um, the best. Uh, okay, so I've wa- here's the four big ones I've watched, finally. <laughs> I watched Inventing Anna. Okay. I watched The Dropout, the, the Elizabeth Dropout. Holmes one. I don't think I've seen that one. That's the one starring um, Amanda Seyfried as Elizabeth Holmes for, um, you know, the drop of blood thing. Um, no, I, I totally don't remember this at all. That one's on Hulu. If you haven't seen The Dropout, like... Documentary. Oh, 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 the Theranos one. Theranos, yeah. Got it. So okay. I saw the scripted version of that, which is the dropout. I watched, I think it's called There's Something About Pam, which is starring okay. Renee Zellweger on um, Hulu. And that's the Pam, you definitely know her, Pam Hupp. She was accused of killing somebody and then she was on Dateline and it kind of exposed her. And huh. she was trying to like frame the girl's husband yeah, that was one thing I watched. And then the last one I watched was Candy. Oh, yeah. Is that the the, do- the dramatization one? Yeah, these are all dramatizations. Oh, okay. Um, and that one's with Jessica Biel. And that is based on um, Candy Montgomery, the Texas housewife. Right. Who was accused of murdering her friend. So those are the four I've watched. And I'll just give you my hot takes. Okay. Okay. The Dropout. Yes. Too Much Dancing. Too okay. much strange. Dancing. Why? They okay. could have cut it down to two. Believe it or not. Yeah. Why, you're wondering? I'm also wondering. Okay. Um, they could have cut it down like two episodes, I think, and it would have been much better. Hmm. But there was a lot of interspersed weird things like dancing and like dramatic long pauses and hmm. backstory where you didn't need it. Interesting. But overall, fine. Okay. Probably my least favorite of the four. Inventing Anna. That was a trip down another it- level. <laughs> And that actress, I when I first started watching it, I had never known anything about the actual case. 
And so when she started speaking in the episode or in, in the show, I was like, wow, yes. she's doing a really bad job of whatever this accent is. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, oh, no, she nailed it. But this woman has this super weird, like, case of the Madonna's strange oh. <laughs> Dorit Kemsley all over Europe accent. <laughs> Lindsay Lohan. <laughs> Lindsay Lohan meets Diana Jenkins. Yes. Meets, uh, Dorit. Yeah. Yes, it's she... so weird. I knew most of the Anna story, Anna Telvey story from uh, Sinisterhood. Oh, episodes okay. about it back in the day. But yeah, that was, she did a great job, that actress. Um, so I'm currently good. watching Ozark, which I'll talk about on the other podcast, but she's a totally different character on that. So I'm really impressed with that actress. And did you watch the SNL skit, oh, Becoming yes. Clo- Inventing <laughs> Chloe? I still go back to that and watch it because it makes me laugh so hard. That was so good. I love her. So good. Yeah, so Inventing Anna, highly recommend. I really enjoyed that. Thought that was really well done. And what's her name? Amanda Peet. Mm. Always a treat. I uh, was going to say go about the candy doc or the candy show. I'm planning to watch that eventually. But I we've talked on this podcast before about how I always thought Jessica Biel was this horrendous actress based yes. solely on BoJack Horseman and the way that they talk about her on BoJack Horseman. But she's a phenomenal actor. I'm so impressed with her. I felt the same way, but based totally on Seventh Heaven. <laughs> oh, is that where she kind of got her start? Yeah, yeah. Um, but she left the show because she wanted to do serious acting. And I remember at the time being like, yeah, right, that's sure. Kabil. <laughs> sure, Jan. Yeah, exactly. And I think oh, she yeah. did some kind of crappy sci-fi movie after that. But she's <laughs> been really great. And I have to say, Candy was probably my, my favorite of the of the ones I've watched. Okay. It was so good, so well done. I had no idea about the story, and it was just really great, really mm-hmm. fascinating. I'm very interested in like learning about the true story now because that was so well done. Nice. And then last, is there something about Pam? Highly recommend watching, and also watch the Dateline episode about the real the real case. It's very campy for okay. a true crime retelling. Uh huh. Because they're, it's made by NBC, I think. It's made by the people who did date, who do Dateline, and okay. um, it's on Hulu. And Keith Morrison actually narrates the TV show, <laughs> <laughs> just like he narrates the Dateline. Yeah. And uh, it's got a lot of, like, campy aspects to it, which, you know, you either love it or you hate it. I liked it. Yeah. Um, and I knew about this story from the Dateline back in the day, so it was <laughs> very, like, it was giving me flashbacks to the real story yeah but it was it was really good the pam hubs the pam hub story the only thing i would say about the something about pam series dramatization is i hope that they're the people who are related to the victim of the crime appreciate it and don't Mm -hmm. have a problem with it because i do see how it's more about the alleged murderer than the actual victim yeah like they highlight the actual victim obviously and they they make her look very positive, you know, they're not like sure. crapping on her or anything like that. But she she sort of does take a backseat to this bombastic character of Pam. Because Pam Hupp was like, when we think, when I think of Pam Hupp, I think of Betty Broderick. Like she was a real character in the media, you know? Does Britney Spears have a song called Bombastic Love? <laughs> I don't know, but she has a song called Email My Heart. <laughs> Shut up. Are you serious? Yes. Oh my god. That's a classic. That's amazing. Um, yes, she sure does. Bombastic Love. It was on her uh, Britney album. Oh my god. I was like, I was trying to remember why that word was. I mean, obviously, I know the word, but it just triggered a uh, a memory. Speaking of early two thousands. 
<laughs> oh my gosh. Well, that's well, that's really all I have. I just wanted to um, catch you up on everything I've been watching and give you my hot takes. <laughs> Great. Are you ready for the episode? Yes. Quick disclaimer to those listening. Uh-oh. Um, you, no, did, no, no. I watched it. <laughs> oh, okay. I was going to say, did you pull a me? <laughs> Imagine. I had four weeks to watch it, but I didn't. <laughs> um, I, um, t- you probably have heard this already if you're listening, if I haven't been able to edit it out. I have some sort of neighbor <laughs> nearby having some kind of party. It might be a Father's Day party. I don't uh, know. That could make sense. But they do this a lot, like mm. randomly. So if you hear fun music in the background, just go with it. Yeah, just uh, enjoy the backing track. I mean, I can't hear it right now, so I feel like it's unlikely that your mic is picking it up. I don't know. I did a test run before, and I was just, like, dancing along. So, Oh, really? We'll see. We'll see. All right. So, anyway, other than that, I am ready to go. Okay. Well, this is Season 4, Episode 10 of Law & Order, and the episode title is The Pursuit of Happiness. Wow. Just like the right? Will Smith movie. Okay. I never saw that. Oh, it's a great one. I mean, you know me in movies. I know. It's a feel-good, tearjerker kind of vibe. It's is Will Smith a good actor, do you think? I think he is. I think he's become like, a very good actor. Actually, I mean, I think he's always been okay. I mean, even like Fresh Prince days, he he did well at that. But yeah. I think he's a, a pretty serious actor. I think sometimes he takes himself a little too seriously. But <laughs> uh, yeah, I think he's good. Hmm. Okay. Well, this episode opens very dark. It was hard to tell what was happening. Um, it's, it seems to be early in the morning, uh, and two men are opening up what looks like a garage, but ends up being a, what seems to me to be like a slaughterhouse, because mm-hmm. there was like a big meat freezer kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and of course, they're doing the typical law and order thing of you know the random conversation that the people who discover the crime are having, and they're talking about how to parent their kids, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And they notice that things are, like, a little off with the workspace. They're like, huh, like, those lights usually aren't on. Like, And they're looking for a man named Coop, who ends up being a man named William Cooper, mm-hmm. who is the owner of this business. Did you ever watch Hanging with Mr. Cooper back in the day? I, d- I did not. <sighs> you missed out. <laughs> did I? It was so funny. <laughs> It was that like on a uh, it was TGI on, Fridays it or was. TGI? Yeah, it TGIF. exactly was on TGIF. So they come upon the kind of like office space of this business, and they see that it's like been kind of turned over. Like you see papers lying everywhere, things have been knocked over, and they're like calling for Coop. And eventually, they find him in his office, and he has been shot and killed. Uh, and then Logan and Briscoe arrive, and Logan, with his just <laughs> magical gunshot identifying pow- powers, like identifies that the man was shot from less than a foot away based on the residue on the buttons of his shirt, because mm-hmm. he's skilled like that. Yeah, all uh, of a sudden. And he is the owner of the butcher shop, and his name was William Cooper, and he was 56 years old. So in this scene we get like (laughs) random beat cops kind of like running in and being like look at this evidence and it's all kind of like adding up to nonsense like it doesn't it this the scene doesn't make sense essentially um because he was shot twice in the chest but there were other like you know all the stuff was like turned over but there were spaces where 
nothing had been affected. So it was like, it wasn't a fight because how would they have like gotten in a fight and messed up this part of the room? Then none of this side of the room and then that side of the room is all fucked up. This is like the opportunity for some reason where we're supposed to like suddenly feel like um, Briscoe and Logan are like the be all end all biggest gumshoes in the world. Oh, for sure. And everyone else is just incompetent fools because... Totally incompetent. Everyone's running in, like you said, like, look at this evidence. And literally everything they show, either Briscoe or Logan, they're like, oh, yeah, sure. You think it means that? Well, you must be really stupid. stupid Yeah, like one of the guys, they're like, don't take the uh, detective exam anytime soon. Like, they're they're being kind of, like you said, elitist assholes. So, like... (laughs) I was like, since when did the two of them become experts? Honestly. Meanwhile, they're like grab, still grabbing evidence with their bare hands. <laughs> yes. But we did get um, some evidence picked up with a pencil because they find a gun in the back alley, which appears to be the kind of gun that uh, would have killed him. Mm-hmm. Another beat cop finds a screwdriver in the back alley, which they're like, oh, they pro- he probably used this to break into the building, and then it was a robbery, and it went bad, and he shot him. But Briscoe immediately identifies the screwdriver as belonging to a set within the shop. So they're like, this is weird. Why would it be outside? He obviously wouldn't have used it to break in, but but it was placed outside. Um, so it doesn't really add up to a, a logical crime scene. Um, mm-hmm. Logan also spots a bunch of photos on the wall of a young woman. There are far too many photos of this woman on the wall, by the way. Oh my God. It looks like the amount of photos you'd see in a family of like 10. Yes. Like all the kids on the wall, but it's just her. Just her. <laughs> And Logan is like, oh, this must be his daughter. But then Briscoe finds a photo, of, uh, a wedding photo of the two of them. But you know what's funny about that? It, that does end up being the case. He is her husband. But that photo could have totally been like a dad and his daughter at her wedding. Yes. Like it wasn't like they were like kissing or holding each other romantically. Like it was just they were standing by each other in wedding attire. Exactly. Strange. Anyway. <laughs> So we get the title sequence, and uh, Father's Day is coming. I'm going to go see my dad next weekend for it. And uh, he's a big fan of key lime pie. So I went and uh, got a ticket to Florida, flew down to the Florida Keys, got some key limes, hopped a quick flight back to California, whipped up a a key lime pie. And by the time it was out of the oven, we were back. (laughs) I love key lime pie, Do by you? the way. Oh my god, it's so good. I mean, I'm kind of a sucker for anything citrus, but I think it's better than yeah. lemon meringue because meringue to me just tastes like eggs, and I don't like the flavor of mm. eggs. Ah, uh, see, I like lemon meringue better. I'm a lemon meringue head, but uh, the key lime pie is definitely way up there. Yeah. <laughs> So when we get back, they are talking with this woman who was the man's wife. She is wearing the largest cowl neck sweater. She is ready for to step in as the understudy in flash dance with this sweater. It is so huge. Yeah. And they ask her, like, you know, the typical question is like, do you know anybody who was mad at your husband who would have wanted to do this? And she's like, no, I don't know anyone who would have wanted to hurt him. She's crying. She's actually not, she's doing a pretty good job of acting crying. Like for the actress is doing a good job. Oh yeah. She was, I liked her. Yeah. She was a good, good actor. So 
she says she doesn't really know any of his friends, and we kind of get the implication that uh, she was sort of, like, kept inside the house, that she wasn't really allowed out very often. Mm-hmm. Um, she's also speaking with a very thick Russian accent, which does end up being uh, kind of integral to the plot. Um And she says that they were about to have their second anniversary and, you know, she left Russia and came to the United States because she wanted to, quote, be safe. And then she says, and they kill my husband. And at first I thought they were going down like a a Russian mafia route with this storyline, but that also didn't end up being the case. Mm Mm-hmm. So they ask her about her whereabouts the night of the murder and she gets kind of cagey and is like, acts like the police are just going to arrest her and take her to jail because the implication there is that uh, if this was Russia, the police would just arrest her, assuming that she had known what happened or she had killed her husband. And so she's like, the whole thing is like, oh, you're not used to the magical due process of the United States. I'm like, oh God. Right. So she says that uh, she was home all last night, except she went out for a little bit late at night to go buy my husband a pastry for his breakfast the next day. Uh, okay. Like, why what would you we- get, who wants day-old, who, like, you know what I really crave day-old pastry? Right, exactly. From midnight. Speaking of which, I had a pastry from Dean Coffee this morning. <sighs> oh, so good. Dean Coffee. Anyway, okay, so the woman, by the way, her name is Irina. So this guy and his wife are kind of getting giving the cops information about sort of like the vibe of Irina and William. And uh, he kind of tells them that, you know, he wouldn't, William's not the kind of guy who would have like gotten into trouble with people. He was like an asshole, but he wasn't, wouldn't have gotten into trouble with people. Um, but he, he recognizes the gun that they tell him he was shot with. And he's like, yeah, that, that was his gun. He like showed it to people. So now we know that William was killed with his own gun. Mm-hmm. So Briscoe and Logan are kind of like, well, do you think it's the wife who did this? Like, maybe she had motive. Maybe he was rich, yada, yada. Logan, this whole time, in kind of like a weirdly, I th- I think the show is meant, I think the show is thinking it's like progressive and feminist, but it's actually like misogynistic <laughs> because Logan is like, she couldn't have done this. She's like too like beautiful and kind and pretty and innocent. And yeah. it's like, um, and too okay. soft and gentle. And, exactly. Yeah. So they look into the financials to see if she had any financial motive. And uh, he had 190000 in a money market account, which they don't think is an amount to kill someone over. Um, I mean, I'm not a killer, but <laughs> that's a lot of money. <laughs> it's a good amount of money. But it's not the kind of money you could live on for the rest of your life. So it's not like, oh, let me kill my husband and live on his fortunes. Yeah. Um, but they do see that there was kind of a habit of spending a couple grand at Bloomingdale's every month. And then like a month back, it just stopped. And so they're thinking maybe this was to keep her happy and he cut off her card and, you know, it made her angry and she killed him is kind of like their, their thinking at this point. Mm-hmm. They also see in his financials a $10,000 donation to an organization called the Russian American Friendship League. And Logan is like, oh, I have their, like, pamphlet here. And he opens it up and sees, like, photos of women. So now we are meant to believe that this scenario between Irina and her husband is like a mail-order bride situation. Right. 
So they go down to that organization, the Russian American Friendship, whatever, League. And uh, they talk to kind of the owner or maybe the head of that organization. And he tells them, like, yes, William, like, met with several women, but he fell in love with Irina and brought her over here from Russia. And Briscoe is like, yeah, this makes sense. Like, he was a middle-aged nerd. Uh, We should feel sorry for him that he had to, like, buy a woman from across the country, essentially. And Logan Logan thinks that they should feel bad for her, that he was taking advantage of this young woman who was in financial trouble. Right. And they're definitely doing this, like, I don't know, like this campaign to show Logan as less of a jackass macho douche yes but yeah it's not really coming off the way i think they think it i is. think in the early 90s it would have come off the way they intended but yeah. like today i think That's people true. are like oh no yeah um by the way i will say at the spoiler alert i hate this episode and the main reason i hate this episode is there are so many scenes that do not advance the plot in any way like it's just like they needed to it's like a filler episode is kind of how this episode felt Mm -hmm. i don't know if you agree but we'll find out at the end okay um so they talk with ins and we learn that irina as an immigrant to the united states uh would get her green card if her spouse suddenly died because it would be like extraordinary circumstances or something like that um, and so they think maybe she, you know, came over here, she had this controlling husband, she didn't like him, but she didn't want to go back to Russia, so she killed him or had him killed so that she could stay here. So the guy at the Russian-American Friendship Organization points them to another couple that William and Irina were friends with, and we we get a scene of them at their house, and it's again like an older man and a younger Russian woman, and Matt, this woman's hair was so large it was i described it as a tidal wave made of hair i have never seen hair that other than gwen shamblin who we talked about this hair was like six inches off the top of her head it's kind of like um kevin's mom in home alone but like a lot longer (laughs) yes yes it's like a title it really is like a wave it's like a, something about Mary when her hair gets stuck way up, but it's all of her hair. Surf's up. So they ask how well they knew William and Arena, and the husband says, like, oh, we weren't really close. Uh, we haven't spoken in over a year. But the wife is like, oh, they were such a nice, happy couple. And so they're like, well, what is the truth, Ellen? Like, he says that you didn't ever talk to them, but she obviously knows them. And so they kind of, like, uh, weasel it out of them that they knew that Irina didn't really like William, her husband, that she wanted to be out of the house. She wanted to have her own life. She wanted to get a job and have her own money. And William didn't like that. He was really controlling. Hmm. But they do give them, Logan and Briscoe, info for Irina's employers. So they head down to Hudson Diagnostic Laboratories, where she worked as a lab tech. We get, again, two characters who get a lot of screen time, one of which didn't need to have this much screen time. Uh, it's a, a man and a woman, and uh, the man co-worker says that Irina worked there three afternoons a week, and they ask, like, did you know about her husband not wanting her out of the house? And neither of them are being particularly cooperative about giving the cops information. Mm-hmm. But they do tell them about how William came in one night wanting her to come home, and he was really upset, but it was like nothing major. 
And the the woman co-worker says that he just brought Irina over here because he wanted a woman to, like, clean the house, raise the kids. And then, like, they refer to her uh, uh, as a less respectful sex worker term a couple of times. Mm Mm-hmm. And she basically says that her husband was a jerk who just wanted to control her because he had, like, leverage over her with money and uh, uh, immigration status. So down at the station, they're kind of talking about what they've learned so far, and they think that maybe Irina just couldn't handle being controlled anymore by her husband. Logan still doesn't think she could have done it. And Briscoe was like, wait a minute. He was alone at work that night, and... They were because they were supposed to have plans the next night to get together for their anniversary. And Briscoe is like remembering, I guess, that he had gone through the evidence and seen this man's like date book and that he always like had everything meticulously documented. But for the plans on Thursday, their anniversary was just a big question mark. So he's like, why wouldn't he know what the plans were? So they think maybe. Irina concocted these plans to get him to go to work the night before on a night he's not usually there late and be there alone so that she could kill him. Hmm. So they go talk to her and she's like, no, we were supposed to go to the theater the next night uh, for our anniversary. And, you know, of course, now we didn't. And uh, they're like, okay, well, if you were going to go to the theater, like you must still have the tickets. And she's kind of like, fuck you guys, like, for thinking that I killed him. But she does produce the tickets to show that, you know, we did have these plans. We were supposed to go to the theater together. In your face. In your face. Um, You know, spoiler alert, she is thinking that this is evidence to exonerate her. It ends up being evidence to uh, accuse her eventually. Because they're they're wondering, like, you know, she produced these tickets thinking that it was a good explanation for her not having done it because she had made plans for them the next night. But they're thinking maybe she bought them for a night that he usually is in the office so that he would go down there the day before when he doesn't usually and nobody else is at the office. Mm. So they go, they're like, all right, let's try to, you know, figure out her whereabouts the night of the murder. And so they go to some markets in the area to try to find the bakery where she supposedly was buying this pastry late at night. And we get a scene with a man who um, says he recognizes her, says he saw her late one night. He's like talking about how hot she was. And she was in there buying stuff with her husband. And Logan and Briscoe are like, what do you mean, her husband? Like, because they know that he was murdered and at work. And so, uh, you know, he's like, yeah, her husband. And they say, describe him. And he says, her husband. He was like in his mid-30s. He was a little shorter than her. Uh, And so we now know that this was not the husband that she was at this market with. Mm. Um, By the way, this... uh, this man works at a Korean market, which ends up being weirdly central to the plot later. So I'm mentioning it now and we'll explain later because uh, he is a, a young Korean man. Mm-hmm. So they ask which night this was. And uh, he says that it was Wednesday night and that the guy was like trying to hurry Irina along. And by the uh, along, by the way, his character choices are very strange because he is like weirdly excited to be having this conversation with Logan and Briscoe. Yeah. It was really strange character choices. So they have enough to get a warrant. Now they go and search her apartment. Uh, She's still denying that she has a boyfriend. And yet 
while they're searching her apartment, they find paper that shows that she had an abortion at a women's clinic. And she's like, oh, it was a medical problem. Like, we we had to abort. and But the paperwork says that it was elective. And so they're, they're thinking, you know, maybe she got pregnant from the boyfriend and, you know, had this abortion uh, to kind of cover it up, yada, yada. Oh, so they go down to the, that women's clinic and talk to the doctor there about her having visited for an abortion. And he says that she came in with her husband and they ask him to describe the husband. And he again describes him as you know, short. Uh, He describes him as Puerto Rican in his mid-30s. And it took me a minute to realize this, but they're describing one of her co-workers, one of the the two co-workers that we met in an earlier scene. So now we know that she was likely having an affair with her co-worker, and uh, they go and talk to this boyfriend that she was having the affair with, boyfriend, co-worker. Mm-hmm. And he says he was working all night and couldn't have done it. And they're like, actually, we already checked the logs of the lab and it shows that you checked out at 1030. And he's like, well, I just went for like a 10 minute walk and I must have forgot to sign back in when I came back. Um, And since he's a lab worker, we noticed that he's wearing gloves and Logan thinks maybe there's talc residue on on the gun that matches the gloves. And so Logan steals one out of the trash can, which means we get a trash can discovery point. Mm -hmm. And he steals it with his bare hands. (laughs) He sure does. And at forensics, they find that the talc uh, from the gloves is the same as the talc on the gun. Uh, It's a very specific kind of talc. And so they now talk to the DAs to get a arrest warrant for Irina and her boyfriend, whose name is Alex Nunez. So they arraign them both for murder in the second degree and conspiracy in the second degree. Both plead not guilty. Kincaid ends up uh, wanting them both held without bail because she's like, they both have contacts in other countries. They're a flight risk. And the judge issues no bail for, like, uh, held without, what's the word I'm looking for? Like held without bail? Yeah. Isn't that that what it's called? Is that the phrase? Anyway. Yeah. So she is not allowed (laughs) to be bailed out uh, pending trial. Uh, he is held on $200,000 bail. So their lawyers meet with Stone, and Stone offers them a plea down to manslaughter one if uh, for Irina if Alex Nunez takes murder two. And the lawyers there are like, nope, no deal, unless they both get a deal. Uh, you know, we want man two and for her not to spend a day in jail. And Stone's like, nope, we're going to court then. But before the lawyers leave one of them kind of talks with stone and is like i hope you've got a strong case because i wouldn't count on your eyewitness and it was weird and again we we didn't have the information that we needed to make sense of that at the time but it does end up being uh important later uh so they're like trying to figure out in a in a meeting with all the da's they're trying to figure out what he meant by this uh not perfect eyewitness and kincaid is like he has 2020 vision. He has no prior record. He picked Nunez out of a lineup. He's like a perfect witness. So what could be the problem? So they go to trial and, you know, they're providing evidence that Irina had conspired with Alex to have her husband killed. Uh, they get the co-worker on the stand, the woman co-worker, and she testifies that uh, Irina's husband was treated her really poorly And so she had an affair with Alex, 
and then the husband forced her to get an abortion. And then after that, he told her he was going to have her sent back to Russia. And so, you know, she says that Irina really had no choice but to murder him. So even though she was like being a difficult witness, uh, she ends up being part of the prosecution's evidence that Irina conspired to have her husband killed. So then they get the grocer on the stand, the young Korean man who had identified Alex Nunez. And the defense lawyers ask him, like, was Alex Nunez wearing a suit the night, that night? And he says, yes. And then the lawyer kind of like signals to some people in the courtroom and three men stand up, (laughs) all wearing similar suits, all kind of like around the same height, same race, uh, you know, same age. And he asks the young grocer if he can see them. And they're stone objects the the judge gets pissed at these like courtroom theatrics and so in chambers they discuss um the the defense attorney for alex and irina talks about the how there are previous cases where people have a hard time identifying people of other races and what's interesting about this is we actually had a speaker come out to campus probably three years ago who this was her area of research Hmm. and what Stone ends up kind of talking about is is true, is that um, there is a likelihood for people to be less able to distinguish between faces of other races when they are not exposed to them, like, early in life. And so if you grow up in a, like, predominantly white neighborhood, um, a lot of faces of other races will not, like, the ability to distinguish between them is less. Mm-hmm. Um but that's true for like people of all races, for all other races. It's just uh, kind of a, a thing that our brain doesn't have the skills at first to distinguish between different faces if you haven't sort of like, if your brain hasn't like trained itself to do that early in life. But so the case, the evidence, the case that the defense attorney is presenting is like one that was in another country that was pretty monoracial and it was, which would make sense that that would provide evidence for that claim. But this young Korean grocer like grew up in Manhattan. Right. Like, he is around tons of different people of different races. So this supposed scientific evidence does not apply to this case, he says. At all. Um, but the judge ends up allowing the defense to bring in expert witness who testifies about these kinds of studies about cross-racial identification. The defense lawyer, you know, gets him to say, like, it's likely that he would have mistaken Alex Nunez for somebody else. But Stone is like, you know, what's the likelihood that out of a lineup of all men of the same race, of the same height, that he would have picked the wrong person when he had picked Nunez out of the lineup? And the the expert is kind of like, yeah, it's it's pretty unlikely. Yeah, baffled. So... They debate kind of like pleading Irina and Alex down because this evidence and, you know, the um, sort of claims of her husband being an abusive jackass, they think is going to emotionally sway the jury. So they're like, maybe we should offer them a deal. So they go and uh, meet with Irina and Alex. And again, we get scenes that do nothing to advance the plot. Like they're like, oh, he's not going to take a deal. And then they're like, okay, but what if we offer him one with Irina? And they're like, okay, it's it doesn't matter. Yeah. Anyway, they offer him manslaughter. They offer her a conspiracy. She'll do a few years, but she won't be deported. 
And they have like a weird fight, the couple, Irina and Alex, and talk about how hard it is to be an immigrant and a person of color in the United States. Uh, Irina talks about how William had promised to bring her son from Russia, but then he said no. And she didn't want to fall in love with Alex, her coworker, but she did. And then William found out, found out she was pregnant, forced her to have an abortion, and she didn't, and threatened to have her deported, and she didn't really know what to do. So she admits that she told Alex that her husband would be alone at the office that night. And Alex said he begged ir- to him, William, to let Irina go. And uh, William said no. And so Alex shot him. And he says, I just didn't want her to go back. And then the episode ends with Kincaid and Stone outside the courtroom talking about how, you know, Irina wanted the American dream and she spent her whole life waiting for it. And then Stone says, maybe she'll wait for Nunez to get out of prison in 15 years. And that's the end of the episode. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun. I feel like I've made my feelings about this episode evident. Oh, not at all. I have no idea. I, I think you're like a huge fan of it. You really enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> I did love it. Anyway. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, well, this episode was, not surprisingly, not based on any real case. Oh, okay. So maybe your thoughts about this being a filler episode weren't completely wrong since it was completely fictionalized. Hmm. But I did find just a case that involved similar themes. So okay. I'm Great. going to tell you the story of Anastasia Solovieva. Okay. I'm going to do my best with these names. I listened to a few, like, how do you pronounce this name type, like, audio things. Yes. Um, and I, I think I got it down. Okay. The names aren't so hard, but the country, I'm going to do oh, my best. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. So Anastasia Solovieva was born on December 24th, 1979. Her parents, Anatoly and Alevtina, uh, they lived in Bishkek. And Bishkek is the capital city of Kyrgyzstan. Mm-hmm. Kyrgyzstan is now known as the Kyrgyz, Kyrgyz Republic, officially. Yes. But for the purposes of this, since this was before, I think they achieved independence... It's. I'm just going to call it Kyrgyzstan. I think it's. I think it's acceptable, based on my research. But uh, Kyrgyzstan is located in the former Soviet Republic, and it's officially. And uh, her parents grew up there during the Soviet regime, teaching music. Okay. They credit their love of music for basically what brought them together and helped them survive. Mm -hmm. The couple met at a music conservatory, and they ended up opening two small music schools in Russia, where Anatoly would serve as the director, and his wife, Alaptina, Ala for short, was a teacher. Mm -hmm. They said that times were tough, and they lived in one of the schools that they opened for a period of time, sleeping on chairs that they would push together. But because before they had Anastasia, the new school, quote, was our child. (laughs) So when they finally had a daughter, Anastasia, they were delighted, and she grew up in a home that was filled with music, particularly classical and jazz. (laughs) Um, They said that she didn't live a sheltered life, but they didn't have, like, television and things like that. They tried to not let her see a lot of um, violent type of media stuff. Mm-hmm. And they wanted her to be surrounded by what they called a wall of music. Like and Phil Spector. 
Oh, yikes, Phil Spector. <laughs> <laughs> so Anastasia would grow up to be a very skilled pianist in her own right. And by the age of 18, Anastasia spoke three languages. She had graduated with top honors from a music school in Bishkek and had a really fond love of classical music. Dang. So she was full of promise. She dreamed of more for herself than she could achieve in her hometown. They kind of described their home as a place where very few really either get some sort of career that propels them forward mm-hmm. um, or that they even get out. So the family had known that Anastasia's cousin previously, like very recently, had found really great success by moving to America and finding love, marrying a man in Florida, mm-hmm. which, yikes, Florida. But um, <laughs> So when she moved, she did so through the mail-order bride circuit. Okay. And she had she was she fell in love with the guy she was with, and she had a career over there. So their parents thought, "Listen, this might be good for you too." So Anastasia's parents urged her to do the same. They even helped her submit her photo and bio to a matchmaking service. And it really didn't take long before seventeen-year-old Anastasia was getting hundreds of letters from possible suitors in the states. Hmm. Uh, and this is in the now late eighties. Now it's in the uh, late nineties. Late 90s. Late 90s, okay. yeah. So now Anastasia's 18 years old. It's 1997. Okay. And a 36-year-old man named Indel King Jr. wrote Anastasia and submitted a photo of himself wanting to meet her, wanted to be her, her love of her life. Mm-hmm. And initially, she and her parents weren't really impressed with his letter. Mm-hmm. Um, he was also twice as old as Anastasia. He was almost twice her weight. He would he was balding from the small photo that he had sent in. And he, he boasted of great wealth. Um, but they were like, well, you know, that's not everything. So he kind yeah. of ends up in a pile with all the others. Okay. Indel was persistent, however. So he wrote several more times until they actually started to agree to speak over the phone with him. So Anastasia and him began corresponding via telephone. And she decided she liked him. He was romantic. He had a love for classical music. And he had had his heart broken in the past. And he just wanted to find someone to love and take care of who would be on his level. Mm-hmm. So eventually they agreed to let him come to meet the family in Kyrgyzstan. And in December of 1997, he flies out there. During his time there, he really sweeps Anastasia off her feet. He really impresses her parents. He's very well-spoken. He says that his family was very well-to-do. They're from Seattle. And when they hear Seattle, they think, like, success in America. And they find out he has a master's degree from a university in Chicago. He loves the arts. He shares a passion for classical music with her parents. And he promises the family that should Anastasia choose to be his partner, that she would never want for anything ever again. Uh, Olive Tina says, A man loves with his eyes, but a woman loves with her ears. The girl just idealized him. Hmm. Within months of this meeting, Anastasia moved to Seattle with Ingle. Indle, sorry. Is Ingle a word? Why would that spell check to Ingle? <laughs> well, like Laura Ingle Wilder, maybe? Maybe. I don't know if I've ever written that. But um, within months, Anastasia moves to Seattle with Indle. And a couple months after that, on April 30th, 1998, they get married at the Justice of the Peace. He is 36. She is 18 years old. Everything kind of seemed pretty rosy at the beginning. She was mm-hmm. she was delighted to be in the States. She had a lot of dreams. She wanted to go to school. He seemed really kind. 
But it didn't take long for the idyllic life that Anastasia was expecting and promised to become basically nothing more than broken promises and lies. Mm-hmm. Indel King Jr. was not who he claimed to be exactly. It, it was mm. a lot of half-truths, it seemed like. Okay. So rather than getting a kind, romantic, supportive, successful husband, she was living with a controlling, temperamental man in total financial duress. I hate that. I hate it too. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I hate that that happened. I'm not saying I hate that because I've experienced it. Yeah, no, she, it's, it's terrible because she had an expectation and he painted this picture and basically his parents were successful in their own right. His father was a CEO of a industrial design firm and his mom was an art professor and they did really well for themselves. But Endel himself did not have the same luck or skill in his own life professionally Um, His parents did not support him financially. They did his sister, who didn't live nearby, but him, he really didn't get anything from them. He did have a college degree and a master's in finance, like he said, but he never was able to really put any of it to good use for some reason. Mm -hmm. He had been repeatedly fired from a long line of jobs, and his only form of income for a period of time was when he was an adjunct professor in Ohio. But he was never able to be, like, kept on for any of those teaching contracts after, like, the period of time that was agreed to. Like, they never yeah. re-signed him. They never gave him a contract. And uh, it just it was a long string of that. Yeah. And adjuncting pays, like, next to nothing. <laughs> yeah. So he he would do, like, that. He would work, like, part-time jobs at, like, supermarkets and such at the same time. And he he was trying to invest in things, but he was never good at that either. Mm. And so that was before he moved back to Seattle, and he did so to try to like start an investment company of his own, mm-hmm. which was unsuccessful. To make money now that he was with Anastasia, he was working at a store in an entry-level position, and he rented out a spare room in his home to short-term tenants for money. So she was already kind of like, okay, this is not what I expected, yeah. Um, by this time, he'd also had several cars repossessed, and he'd already been divorced once. Hmm. It also turns out that his so-called heartbreak with this woman before was not everything he had made it out to be either. So hmm. let's rewind and talk about that for a second. Okay. Ekaterina Kazakova was a student looking to study biology in the States. She lived in Oslo at the time in the early 90s. She came across an ad in the Moscow News for an opportunity to study abroad, and she began corresponding with the man who placed the ad, who would turn out to be Indel King Jr. Okay. He agreed to let him let her board with him, so she did so in September of 1993. So this is about, you know, let's say four years before the whole Anastasia correspondence. Okay. She moves there. She lives with him. Um, and it's in Ohio at the time. This is when he's doing the adjunct professor thing. And she's there on a visiting student's visa. Within weeks of her being there, Indel proposes to her, which was not something she expected. It took her off guard because it wasn't a romantic thing. She -hmm. was literally trying to be an exchange student. Yeah. Um, But he told her that it was the only way she'd be able to stay in the United States. She says, quote, being a 19-year-old Russian student at the time, I had no idea how everything works here. To me, he seemed like a very nice, intelligent person, end quote. So she trusted him. Uh, the two married on October 11th, 1993, which was very soon after she got there, less than a month later. Yeah. And it kind of was an amicable partnership. Um, 
until about 1995, which was about two years later. Indel was running up credit card debt in her name. Um, He was unable to renew any of his instructing positions, as I said. He was caught shoplifting from grocery store for basic household groceries on multiple occasions. And what began in their relationship as demeaning comments and verbal abuse escalated. She says, quote, it kind of became a pattern when it was easier for him to hit me. I got very threatened by his behavior. In the summer of 1996, she gathered the courage to get away while Indel was at work one day. And she drove away and began living in their car for a period of time while she mustered up the courage to go forward and file a protection order against him. Yeah. She also files a divorce, uh, files for divorce, and she's granted both by July of 1997. She never saw Indel again. She changed her name and she moved away and she's uh, allegedly doing very well for herself, remarried and working as a dentist. Good. Yeah. The divorce cost Indel $55,000, which left him very bitter and angry. And it was only a couple months after this that he finally moved from Ohio back to Seattle and began chatting with Anastasia. Mm-hmm. So now let's fast forward back to 1998. Indel and Anastasia are living together. And according to friends of hers and a secret journal that she was keeping, her marriage was like warfare. Yeah. She did whatever she could to have a life of her own. Um, Indel was constantly threatening deportation, and so she tries to do something for herself because he tells her, basically, you have to do what I say, and if you don't, you're done. You're gone. Hmm. And so she figures, I have to kind of make this work. So in the meantime, while she's living with him, she has a separate room. They don't even share the same bed or anything. She enrolls in a business or in business courses at the University of Washington, where she'll earn a 3.8 GPA, and she makes friends pretty easily, which he does not like. Mm-hmm. She also gets a job at a restaurant as a hostess. Um, I've read a few articles where it said she worked at two jobs doing this, but um, basically she was she was the breadwinner of the house. And rather than supporting her as she got these jobs, it just made Engel more jealous and more upset because he didn't really have an outside life of his own either. And of course, he didn't want her to. Sure. She tells her friend and supervisor Patty at work that he didn't want her to work at all, despite them needing the money, and that he was very controlling. And her coworkers all say that he would drop her off every day and pick her up every day, and he would wait outside for long periods of time after dropping her off and before picking her up. So she really didn't have any autonomy in this situation, even at work. Awful. Can you imagine? Disgusting. So she'd show up to work with bruises from time to time, and she kept her journal, her personal journal, at a storage locker at work that she locked because she said that she didn't trust it at home. Probably wise, based on his other behavior. Honestly. She shared with her friends, um, and she wrote how the couple had separate bedrooms, but she wasn't allowed to have a lock on hers, and how Indel was getting frustrated that he wants more obedience and sex from her, and he was constantly pressuring her to give him a child. She was not interested in having a child at this point. I think she was like 19 or 20, and she just got there, and things weren't going well. So she certain whether she wanted a child in life or not, she certainly didn't want one in, under this circumstance. 
Mm-hmm. What seems to be his main motivation for wanting a child, by the way, is because he believes that his parents will sort of su- start supporting him financially if he did have a kid, mm-hmm. because they weren't really into all of his failed investments and stuff. Right. But when his sister started to have children, they like opened up the wallets to her, and she had gotcha. full access to it. So he's thinking, well, this is the way I can get out of this. While he would admonish Anastasia for working. Um, despite his belief that Western women were not ambitious enough, that's why he would always say he was looking overseas, he'd be taking the money that she earned from her accounts because he was fired from yet another job at this time. So he didn't want her to work, but she was the main breadwinner and he would take her money. Great. Besides Anastasia's paychecks, their only other source of income at the time was tenants that he would rent the spare room to, as I mentioned. Mm Mm-hmm. By late 1999, the couple had been married two years, and Anastasia was feeling increasingly more suffocated in the relationship. She wrote in her journal that he didn't allow her to see a counselor, he restricted her from applying for a driver's license, and he regularly forced her to have sex and threatened her. Um, This is also around the time a new tenant started boarding with them, a 21-year-old named Daniel Larson. Anastasia was not a fan of this man. Um, He was closer to her age. At this point, she's around 20, and he was a registered sex offender, which he did make clear to them when he moved in, and they were able to, like, look up his record and everything. He had a, you know, I won't say extensive, but substantial sexual assault record, and it made her very uncomfortable having him in the house, and she was not quiet about it either. Okay. Despite her misgivings about him, Indel let him live there, and he actually became friends with him, and he would become their longest-running tenant. Like, instead of short-term, he really stayed for a while. Hmm. So Anastasia is now feeling like a stranger in her home, even more so now. Now she's feeling outnumbered, because Indel really likes this guy. The two of them are buddy-buddy. She's having issues with Indel, and she's having issues with Daniel, and Daniel doesn't like her either, because he Mm -hmm. knows that she, you know, she doesn't like him there. Yeah. So by late spring of 2000, Anastasia is feeling like this had really come to a head. It's too much for her to bear. She doesn't know if she wants to wait this relationship out anymore. And she tells Indel that she needs some time and space from him to figure things out. So she had already bought a ticket home to stay with her parents in uh, Kyrgyzstan. He is not thrilled about this, but he, you know, he lets her go, quote unquote, lets her go. Right. And while she's overseas with her parents, she confides in them some of her turmoil, not the whole picture, but she asks her mom, Mama, why do I feel so sad? Aww. Her parents, just like her friends and coworkers in the States, urge her to leave him, but she's scared and she doesn't really know what she wants to do. She doesn't know if, you know, she's wasted so much time already. Right. And meanwhile, in Seattle, Indel had been arrested for shoplifting bananas and soda from a Costco. Mm. So while he's being, uh, you know, interrogated or questioned by police for this, he says he's depressed, he's desperate, and he's in financial ruin because his wife is divorcing him and threatening to take everything from him. This, of course, is not true, as we know. And shortly after they let him go, he secretly files for divorce from Anastasia while she's overseas. On September 18th, 2000... Indo flies to uh, Kyrgyzstan to meet with her and allegedly reconcile. Mm-hmm. And while he's there, he convinces her that things will be better if she just moves back with him. Huh. Despite his, you know, pleas to, you know, stay in the relationship and make it more romantic and let's have a kid and all that, she tells her parents that she plans to get her degree, get her green card, and then get a divorce. 
By the end of April, which is about seven months away, she'd have been married to him for three years, and she'd be eligible to stay in the country after she divorces him. So she figures, let me at least wait it out. I've done this for, you know, two years and however many months. I can do seven more months. Right. So four days after arriving in Kyrgyzstan on September 22nd, 2000, Anastasia's parents take the two of them to the airport to fly back to Seattle together, and the couple fly home and take a shuttle bus back to the house at 2.30. She never called her parents, as she promised, to say they arrived home safely. She also misses her next two shifts at work, which is very unlike her. And her parents call her home multiple times, being like, we haven't, you know, to find out what's going on. Right. But rather than getting a voicemail or anything, Angel keeps picking up the phone and hanging it up. Um, one thing I watched allegedly said that the last time they called, he's picked up the phone and just started screaming Moscow into the phone and then hung up. Weird. I didn't see this anywhere else, so it could have just been dramatization, but it's kind of strange. Yes. On October 2nd, 2000, 10 days after they arrived back home in the States, Anastasia is reported missing by her family and friends, not by Indel. Police arrive at the house to question him, and he's home, they could tell, but he's not answering the door. So they go around back, and they knock, and he finally emerges and lets them in. And he tells them that he had a flight, a flight he had a fight uh, at the Moscow airport with Anastasia before they took off. And it was because she was having an affair, and she left him and like walked away, and she's, she never got on the plane with him. And he just assumed she was staying behind and that he was leaving. She was leaving him. Um, you know, same kind of thing. She's divorcing me. She wants to take all my money. She was using me to stay in the country. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. It takes about a week or so, but authorities obtain the flight manifest, which show Anastasia was on the flight. And they also get surveillance from the airport that shows her passing through customs, like, immediately after Indel. Hmm. So they go back to confront him about it. And he's like, what? She was on the plane? I had no idea. Like, he's acting like an idiot. Like, yeah. I can't believe she was right behind me in customs. She must have been sneaking around, basically. Weird. So they know it's, like, super shady, and they have a real good idea that he's involved in whatever happened to her so far. So he's under surveillance, and this leads them to questioning his former tenant, Daniel Larson. Now, why is Daniel Larson his former tenant at this point, you may be asking yourself. Hmm. <laughs> because at this time, Daniel Larson is in jail. For violating his parole by soliciting a 16-year-old girl from Eastern Europe in a mall for sex. Oh, God. So. No wonder he and this guy got along. Uh, yeah, exactly. And how did Indel lead police to him? He'd been visiting him in jail re- regularly since arriving back home. <laughs> so on December 28th, police question Larson in prison, and he eventually confesses that um, he'll tell them everything they need to know as long as they give him some kind of a deal. Mm-hmm. And he says that he and that he and Indel King murdered Anastasia together. It was under uh. Indel's orders, and he alleges that he and King had a sexual relationship at this point. Hmm. He says that he already didn't like Anastasia because he was aware she didn't want him living there, mm-hmm. and Indel didn't want to div- a divorce from her because he was worried that she would get away with his money like his ex-wife did. And so Indel's plan was to fly to Kyrgyzstan and steal her passport and a visa, return home with it, like abandoning her there so he could divorce her and she would have no like cause to contest it. Hmm. 
But when they came home together, Indel had a new plan. He told Larson to hide in their home, holding a necktie. And once they got home from the airport, Indel called Anastasia downstairs while she was unpacking. And when she came into the kitchen, he kissed her and gave her a hug. But this embrace turned into a bear hug, and he wouldn't let her go. Anastasia was 135 pounds, and Indel King was over 270. So while she struggled to get free, King called Daniel to come out from where he was hiding, put the necktie around their neck, and they wrestled her to the ground, and King pinned her down while Larson strangled her. So Anastasia Slovevia, or Sloviva, died that day, September 22nd, 2000, at age 20. 20. Oof. That's terrible. Then King cut her hair off, removed her ring finger, and then the pair of them wrapped her in a carpet, drove her to a location near a reservation that was kind of hard to get to, and they yeah. buried her in a shallow grave. Why did he cut her hair? It's unclear. Okay. It's unclear. I, I would... My guess is to, like, shame her. Huh. I think okay. he he was always sort of the um, how did he get her kind of guy. Yeah, yeah. And she was beautiful, like, yeah. you know, to by all accounts, and a very, like, bubbly, effervescent person. And I mm-hmm. think he looked at her hair as something that made her beautiful and okay. probably cut it off to, like, sort of, like, take that away from her. Same yeah. thing with her ring finger. There's no clear reason why he did that. And I imagine it was some sort of, like, you know, symbolic gesture. Exactly. Yeah. So Larson's able to lead police successfully to recover Anastasia's body. They find her exactly how he said. And she had a business card on her that said, call this number if something happens to me. Hmm. The number was not for her husband, but for her coworker, Patty. And Patty gets the call and they tell her, you know, we found her body and she is devastated. She immediately wonders if Indel wasn't involved. Patty yeah. says, quote, Anastasia was full of grace. She was fun-loving, loved life. She was a beautiful woman. Mm-hmm. On December 29th, Indel King was arrested, and on February 5th, he was charged with first-degree murder. Uh, Larson's deal reduces his charge to second-degree murder in exchange for his cooperation and testimony. Larson receives a 20-year sentence for his deal, um, pleading guilty to second-degree murder on April 13th, 2001. Mm-hmm. In January 2001, during Indel King's trial, he's also being charged with tampering with a witness because hmm. he had several inmates try to coerce Larson not to testify at his trial, and he got caught. <laughs> yeah. So Larson, even though he has a lot to say, he turned out not to be the best witness for the prosecution Mm -hmm. that they were hoping for Mm -hmm. because i'll just read a quote of what they discovered during um his his time at uh trial for king okay quote at one point in a letter to cult figure and convicted murderer christopher turgeon he said he killed king's wife on his own because he believed she was an evil adulteress and god wanted her dead At other points, he told one of King's attorneys that he had played a part in the movie Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and had ice cream with Kevin Costner, and told the probation officer that a government chip was implanted in his head at age six to increase his agility. Yikes. So, not exactly what the prosecution was hoping for. (laughs) No, I'm not. (laughs) Um, But it was really King, when he took the stand for himself, that really gave the most damning evidence. He admitted to stealing her passport and visa on his trip to go see her when he was supposedly trying to reconcile with her. Mm -hmm. 
He was also found communicating with other quote-unquote mail-order brides online four months before the murder. And he was telling them in August that he would be, quote, free in one month. And that his wife had already left him. He also admitted to forging documents on her immigration application that gave him the power to ruin any attempt she would have at permanent residency. Five weeks after his trial began, on February 21st of 2001, the jury finds King guilty of witness tampering and first-degree murder, and he was sentenced to 28 years without possibility of parole. Okay. After the trial, Anastasia's mother says, quote, we were so blind, if I had trusted him less, I could have saved my daughter. Her parents couldn't afford to fly her home for burial, and so she's buried in the United States in Washington. And her parents fought to extend their visas to stay permanently um, Mm -hmm. so that they can stay close to her burial site. She was their only child. And uh, I couldn't find any information if they won this, but I I have a feeling that they did because they were able to fight later on in later years to get legislation passed on behalf of her. Okay. So largely because of Anastasia's story and another woman whose name is Susanna Remoretta Blackwell – Uh, She was killed after moving to the States from the Philippines by her partner in 1995 in a similar sort of like matchmaking mail-order bride situation. Uh, Because of the two of their stories and the family's fights to get legislation passed, Congress passes the International Marriage Broker Regulation Act in 2006, which helps protect women who marry through matchmaking services and marriage brokers internationally. There's, uh, they get full access to background checks for whoever they're speaking to. They get protection from law enforcement when they come over here. There's like, you know, um, time periods that are implemented in there that help to sort of like secure their rights. Mm-hmm. So that's the silver lining, I guess. Okay. Three days after the trial, all but two jurors went to a memorial service in Anastasia's name with her family. And the parents handed out at the at the gravesite to all the jurors, chocolate eggs, because they were a favorite treat of Anastasia's. And they, in return, gave the family a plaque that read, in remembrance of Anastasia, who only wished to follow her dream. Indo King Jr. is 60 years old today. He's still incarcerated at Stafford Creek Correction Center in Washington, and he won't be eligible for parole until around 2031. Mm -hmm. In 2006, Daniel Larson fought to amend his previous plea, saying that he expected to get far lesser sentence. He didn't understand it. He said that, you know, he didn't know he was going to be pleading guilty to second-degree murder and still get 20 years. He thought it was going to be way less. So he wants to amend that plea, take it back now. That violates the terms of his plea agreement. So he's advised against this repeatedly. And he's given over a year to change his mind. Because, again, this violates the terms of his original plea agreement. And if he does do this, he can be tried again. So he continues on. He still believes it's wrong that he's in jail for so long. And so he goes ahead against everyone's judgment. And because of this, a term of his original plea deal was that the double jeopardy laws would not apply to him if he takes it back. And so he's tried for first-degree murder instead of second-degree murder. He's found guilty, and he's sentenced to an additional 12 years. So 32 years longer even than Indel King got. Hmm. So he would have been eligible for parole this year, 
Uh-huh. Um, but now he's still incarcerated uh, at Coyote Ridge Correction Center in Washington, and he's not eligible for parole until 2034. He'll be he's 42 years old today. Okay, that's the same age Anastasia would have been today. Yeah. And that is basically the whole story of Anastasia Solovieva and uh, her murder at the hands of her husband, Indel King. Wow. Uh, it's terrible. It's terrible. And I I did some research to try to find out a little bit more about the... Like, is mail-order pride? Is, like, is that the appropriate term anymore? And it looks like it's still used. Um, it's a controversial term, but it's not necessarily politically incorrect. Okay. I think people prefer to say, like, international dating or international matchmaking pen pal relationships, things yeah, like yeah. that instead. But the sort of misconceptions around male order bride mm-hmm. and that whole idea is kind of what you see in the episode of Law and Order. Like a opportunistic young gal who wants to come over to the States and marry a rich Westerner mm-hmm. and, you know, to take him for his money or whatever, or do whatever, and use right. him to live some sort of secret life outside right. of him. Yeah. And largely, that is not the case. Yeah. Um, as you could see from this story and a similar story, legislation has been passed to protect quote-unquote mail-order brides because they are usually the ones who are in danger, if yeah. anything else, because they are the ones who are in a foreign land. Right. They are the ones who are isolated from their support system. And they are the ones who are at mercy of someone who's lived a whole life here before them that they can only go off of whatever they tell him. They tell them until the most recent legislation in 2006, at least. And so when I was doing research to try to find a case that was just like this one in the episode, I couldn't find Mm -hmm. a single one. I couldn't find a single example of a mail-order bride, quote-unquote, who had come over, gotten into a relationship with another guy, and then the two of them conspire to kill the, the husband. Yeah. I couldn't find one. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but whenever I was looking up anything related to a mail-order bride situation, it was always the reverse. It was always yeah. the mail-order bride who was the one who was in danger, abused, hurt, tricked. Um, yeah. And I actually found data saying that while the divorce rate for mail-order bride situations is high, mm-hmm. it is at least half of what the normal divorce rate is in the United States. Hmm. And even uh, there's one in um, Sweden where they did a study there as well. And it's almost half of the normal divorce rate in Sweden as well. So the success rate of a mail-order bride arranged marriage situation is actually higher (laughs) than the standard (laughs) people who meet otherwise. And I mean... They're mostly meeting – I think the reason Mail Order Bride is looked down upon is because I read that it was originated, in, I think, in the 1800s, mm. and they were called tobacco brides or picture gotcha. brides, depending on where they came from. And it was they, – they literally picked them from like a catalog to come over here um, to the Western world where they were having, quote, unquote, trouble finding women, and they were like using them to populate so that they'd have reasons to – build schools and have commerce and all of that. Oh, weird. And wow. so it was sort of like a agreement always, and it, it kind of takes away the um, the connotation that it could be a, a, a situation to, like, find love and be like a, you know, traditional arranged marriages, which happen all the time in right. many cultures very successfully. So 
All that is to say is uh, I, I had a really hard time finding any example of a case where it was the the, the husband right. who was in danger. And yeah. largely, it was stories like Anastasia's, unfortunately. Wow. Well, great job. Thank you. That is terrible. Yeah, it was really it was really sad. I uh, yeah. it, it's it's heartbreaking to see things like this, you know. Yeah. Well, how would you rate the episode and say it dealt with similar topics? I okay, watchability. I'm gonna give it a C minus. Okay. I found it to be similar how you did. Um, I probably didn't li- dislike it quite as much as you did, mm-hmm. but I really thought because the acting was pretty good, it was it was entertaining at least. Like I was compelled, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did think there was a lot of filler <laughs> scenes in it, and I yeah. really hated that like weird. Oh well, you had an Asian witness kind of thing because it was yeah. so unnecessary. It felt like they were right. just like, "Ooh, we read a study like this. Let's throw this in an episode." Let's shoehorn it in. Yeah. <laughs> um, what about you for watchability? What would you give it? I'm going to give it a D plus for watchability only because it uh, took far too long to uh, <laughs> to watch. <laughs> yeah. I just felt like it went on and on and on. So I'm going to say a, a, a D plus. Yeah. And I think for how it dealt with the elements of this type of crime, I would give it a C minus as well. I don't think it did like any Great. justice to the trope of yeah. the opportunity. Like they tried. <laughs> With Logan, right. like, oh, but ultimately they made her the the villain and, mm-hmm. like, a liar and sneaky. Right. And uh, while they, they drew sympathy for her, you know, they made it seem like this is kind of what happens. Right. And that's really what you see in media all the time. So, yeah. you know, I think they tried. I think they thought they were doing the right thing. <laughs> but uh, I don't. They failed. Unsuccessful. What about you? <laughs> yeah, I would say, like, you know, the woman was a decent actor, uh, compared to some of the other folks in the episode. But yeah, I didn't love how they dealt with like immigration status. And Mm -hmm. uh, like you said, the kind of misrepresentation of her being, well, in the episode she was, but the kind of the fact that that's the story we hear is like the scheming gold digging woman from another country kind of thing. uh, I didn't think was very good. No. So uh, I guess I'll say D plus for that as well. D plus. D's, D's, D's across the board. (laughs) Well, if you would like to help us grow, the very best thing you can do is to rate and review our podcast on whatever platform you are using to listen to our episodes. Yes, and most people will try a podcast because a friend recommends it. So if you are enjoying our show, please tell all your friends. That's right. And... Uh, our social media is Ripped Headlines on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Our email is RippedHeadlinesPod at gmail.com. We love getting emails, so just send us a note to say hi. And while you're online, head on over to RippedHeadlinesPod.com. You'll find the link to our Patreon there, as well as our merch store. Yes, and a percentage of our Patreon proceeds get donated to the Equal Justice Initiative, so by supporting us, you are supporting positive change in the world. And if you'd like, you can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash N and Matt. And we want to thank our newest Patreon member, Taylor, for joining. Thank you, Taylor. We appreciate you. Yes. Thank you so much for listening to Riff from the Headlines, where you get the facts and some fiction. We'll see you next week. And until then, stay out of the headlines. Bye. Bye.